ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There have been a number of confronting stories this week about what happens when people, and it's usually men, are radicalised. Police are investigating a white supremacist rally which took place in regional Victoria over the weekend. About 30 people wearing balaclavas marched through Ballarat carrying banners. In Ballarat, a group of black-clad people marched down the street chanting white supremacist slogans. Then yesterday, we heard how the three men that shot two police officers and a neighbour at a rural property in Queensland last year were connected to a religious extremist group with links back to the United States. International cooperation has resulted in the arrest of a 58-year-old man in the United States as a major investigation continues following the murders of two police officers and a member of the public during a shooting incident in the Western Downs last year. Queensland police have referred to the attack at Weambilla as an act of religious terrorism. And as we heard, an American man living as far away as Arizona has been arrested in relation to it. Both of these events have something in common. The acts of violence or protest are as a result of radicalisation and that radicalisation began in the dark rooms of the internet. Today in Australia Wide we explore the extremist mindset with a man who was once a member of a violent racist group but now identifies and works with people at risk of being radicalised. I'm Sinead Mangan coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. When a group of neo-Nazis dressed in black with their faces covered marched through a regional town on a Sunday afternoon shouting white supremacist slogans, it was a pretty shocking sight. That's what happened in Ballarat in Western Victoria on the weekend with the actions broadly condemned by the local community. Now, while it was shocking, it was also really hard for many in the community to understand. Matthew Quinn is someone who does understand the extremist mindset. He would say he was once one himself, but now he dedicates his time to helping members of these groups to disengage and exit from them. Now, Matthew, can you tell me about, there's a group called Exit Australia. You're very much a founder of that. Can you explain to me what it is you do and, and what, what in your background made you start it? Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, basically, uh, you know, in my background, when I was 15 years old, I was part of an anti-Asian group. Uh, we used to go around, you know, we had a problem with the Asians in the community. And so Exit started 22 years later after that, uh, where the New South Wales police contacted us and uh, asked if we could assist with an individual they had that was a high risk mm-hmm. um, and had Nazi beliefs and asked us if we could try and reduce those risks to the public. So since then, you've worked for 250 clients. Do you call them clients, people? You know, how, how you know, when you get involved with someone, what's that kind of relationship like? Yeah, I do. I call them clients. Uh, yeah. We're up to about 265, I think, now. How do you insert yourself into that then, Matthew? I know you remember being a 15-year-old and, and how you felt at that time and why you acted like that at that time. But how do you then as an older man now, get somebody like that to chat to you? Like, how do you do that work? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's really funny, eh? Like, I've actually, oh, I don't know if funny is the right word, but I've had a few of them uh, actually say that they respect me from the past that I have, mm. uh, where they can't have a conversation with someone that's been through it in the past, you know, with a police officer or a community person. Basically, like, really all I do is just do the intake, you know, just try and find out what's going on for the individual and assess the risk to themselves or to the public. What what radicalizes someone? 
the main radicalisation, it can happen like from like community settlement. Um, you know, so, you know, like if we look at the past when, you know, the war on terrorism and was happening, you know, there was a lot of people that were against, uh, mistakenly against the Muslim community. Um, and then there was a lot of fear with immigration and stuff like that, you know, that they're going to take our jobs and things like that. And that sediment in the community uh, with somebody that's already uh, full of rage and is, is looking for something to scapegoat on, uh, that rage, you know, instead of doing the work that they have to do to fix themselves up, you know, they, they just scapegoat and, and join that movement. Um, but the radicalization gets worse when they just leave what is happening in the community and move into a group. And then the leader of that group starts to condition them uh, to the leader's agenda. Now, in that time, things have changed because of the internet, you know, social media. A lot of people kind of pinpoint that the problem is about that, you know, that that's why you're seeing more radicalised youth. Do you believe that? Uh, yeah, look, I think, you know, obviously with the internet, there's that ease of network now. So, um, you know, before, like in my time, it would have been like catching up at parties and things like that on a weekend. Uh, now, anytime there's like a story about, um, you know, a certain matter, uh, individuals can jump on there and vent their anger and stuff like that. And then leaders or recruiters will be in there like picking those people, you know, on social media and stuff like that and having a further chat with them to introduce them to the group. But is it more dangerous? Because I think often people think this is happening more and more because, mm. you know, we're basically more aware because we've all got more information at our fingertips. Just as somebody who is looking for an outlet who may get radicalised as a result of that, have more and more things at their fingertips. But does that mean it's actually happening more or are we just more aware of it? Is the internet being that powerful as a tool or is it just that it's just in your face? Yeah, I think it is that it's just in your face. But I think also, like, uh, you know, the thing that I love about social media, I mean, it's not a lovely thing, but, you know, it mirrors, it shows a reflection of what society is. Do you know what I mean? So, um, you know, before these groups would have been out there, but we never would have seen them. Um, and now we see them and it's in your face, you know. We saw in, in Ballarat on the weekend that there was a very visible rally, although people's faces, bar one, was not visible, were not visible, rather, which means that there's a certain comfort about, I don't know if the comfort's the right word, but, but that that group decided that they wanted to make that stance on that particular day and were quite comfortable to walk down the main street of a major regional town. Did that shock you? Uh, look, it is shocking, but it, it doesn't shock me anymore. Like, I'm pretty desensitised to... Um you know, things in the extreme nature. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the reason they do stuff like that is just basically for recruitment, you know. They're just out there showing force, you know, trying try and get more people to, to join up with them. Yeah. So, Matthew, in that case, would you be able to, in your work, start to find those attached to that group? Oh, well, I actually have a couple of people from that group who are actually our clients. So, um, yeah, some work in progress already, yeah. So in that, how do you de-escalate that? Because that, that's quite remarkable, really. Well, you know, it's, there's no real set plan because uh, each individual has their own uh, personal needs of like why they've joined up with the group. You know, some of it's, uh, well, a lot of it most of the time is, uh, you know, there's a disconnect between the family. Um, you know, they're looking for an elder in their family and, and can't find it or the elder is like not present, like emotionally or physically. Um so some of them get drawn to this group because of somebody that they can look up to and, and hang out with and they see that person as an elder, someone that's strong. Um, and then others just, you know, just seeking a sense of purpose, like they they have nothing really going for them and, and see this group as, as being that. Do you think society on the whole is more angry now than it was? 
No, no. I think uh, you know what happens is when there's like a, an atmosphere for um, people to vent. Uh, you know, when like a certain uh, race or a group of people, a minority is uh, is uh, used as a scapegoat. You know, like whether that's politically or geopolitically or or locally, um, individuals come out and find that as a place where they can vent and feel they can get away with it. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's I don't think we've become more violent. I just think that that avenue has been a lot more prevalent recently. And is, is that so? When you think of your fifteen-year-old self, that's where you were at that time. You needed to vent. Yeah, yeah. Like I had a lot of uh, pretty bit of a traumatic background, and um, you know, I didn't really have anyone in the community, and, that, and that's the key. Like having that connection to people in the community, so you don't fall down that rabbit hole. Um, and I just needed to vent that rage that I had, and I really couldn't find anything except for the stuff that was in the community about hating Asians at the time. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, and there was a lot of hatred uh, in the family, you know, because of the war. You know, my grandpa's, grandparents fought against the Japanese and stuff like that. So uh, I wasn't very well educated, so I didn't realise there was different countries in Asia. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Is it mostly young men that you work with? Uh, yeah, look, it's probably like between the ages of um, eight and uh, uh, about 36. Did you say eight? Yeah, that's the youngest we've had, yeah. yeah. Wow. But obviously the family reached out to us on that one, so. Right. So that, that family could recognise in their eight-year-old that that eight-year-old was being radicalised? Well, I was actually a, a, a family member overseas. I uh, was talking to them online and, and uh, recognised from the things that they were saying that there was a problem and then contacted the parents back here in Australia uh, who then reached out to us for help. So, yeah. so well, talk me through that because that's interesting that – Obviously, that, that person knew that that was the thing to do. How would you know? How would a family member know what to do if they were seeing signs? What are the signs? Yeah, I mean, probably the bigger signs are, um, you know, the individual certainly, like, changes their behaviour. Uh, you know, and, well, sometimes, you know, if, if the parents try and figure out what's going on and then the child tells them that, you know, they've joined up or aligned with themselves with an ideology, then the parents will try and argue with that. Um and then, you know, obviously the kids argue back and, and the parents can get the sense of like how uh, conditioned, you know, their child is by, by the ideology. Mm. Um, and then obviously, you know, there's changes in clothes, um, you know, a bit more secrecy, um, certain times that they might be going out, you know, like a, a pattern, you know, where they don't tell the family where they're going and a distrust. Um, that's certainly like the biggest signs, yeah. I, I am quite bamboozled by the fact that an eight-year-old was one of your clients, as, as you said, but but also it's older men as well. And we saw in YM Billet um, yesterday in Queensland, the a year later, they have arrested somebody in the US state of Arizona about, and it was connected with the shootings that happened there in Queensland. Um, and that was around a Christian end of days ideology. I just wanted to ask you about the international influence of extremist groups. How often do you come across that? Yeah, I mean, international influence is pretty big. It was pretty huge during the Trump days. Uh, yeah, and then stuff that was coming from Europe, uh, you know, and especially during like, you know, that, that time, that period with the war on terrorism, uh, you know, with a lot of immigration and stuff like that happening. Uh, There's definitely a lot of influence from, from uh, overseas, yeah. 
And that was older men? Did that surprise you? They were in their 40s, kind of middle-aged men? Uh, I think the most surprising thing was, uh, was actually like one case that I worked on. I was helping out the police and um, there was actually a lady that was 75, I think, um, in the middle of New South Wales. I was actually um, helping you know, the groups here in Australia so from, from groups overseas. So I'm so I'm incorrectly kind of you know we I suppose the media on the, on the whole often refer to this as a young men's issue but what you're describing to me is not that at all. No, it's definitely not. Uh, uh, women like you know, like women are generally more like on a supportive role. You know, or, or they're often used sometimes, or they you know they do it themselves, so like act in a way that um, entice men. You talked about that the lady that you're helping in New South Wales. There are examples that come from regional Australia. Do you see any difference? We were talking about Ballarat earlier. Do you see any kind of recruitment happening more so in regional Australia than elsewhere, or is it fairly across the board? No, it's fairly across the board. Um, I think that individuals that live on rural properties are uh, more likened by by group leaders, you know what I mean, because uh, especially if they're looking at doing violence one day or preparing for violence. You know, they can stash weapons or um, do training and stuff like that out on those properties. You know, these groups try to, like, put on a whole thing of, like, you know, being a man, you know, you need to be out in the bush and hiking and be strong and uh, have willpower and stuff like that. You know, and, um, you know, going out and on a hike and for some reason, you know, doing how Hitlers and things like that is somehow, to them, proving that you're a man. They love going out to places like that. You know, obviously they can't get away with that too much in city streets. For the community in Ballarat, it was quite terrifying to see these men on the street on Sunday. Um, and then I, I've heard from the community, they were worried about, like, who's living in our community. Mm. What What do you say about that? Like, it, it's very unnerving. I think we've got to, like, sort of start accepting as communities, you know, that there are individuals in the community that are vulnerable. They're isolated and they haven't been able to find the support that they need and then they end up falling into these groups instead. Early on, you were telling me that Exit Australia, and there's also a group in New Zealand, I understand, that was post-Christchurch. So you've dealt with 260-odd in eight years. Do you think that you've prevented violence in, in having that number of clients that you've dealt with directly? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of, I don't know. You can kind of be proud when you stop attacks, you know, uh, in the country. It's pretty cool. You know, like the thing is with, uh, you know, the group that we saw like in Ballarat, like uh, the leaders don't realise like the intent of like their members. Yeah, I mean, like so sometimes their members can be involved in the group, but also in the background they're working away or plotting something themselves to try and impress the leader or take over the leadership as well. So sort of like that old sort of like pyramid sort of thing, you know what I mean? Like, um, you know, you have the leader at the top and then all the people below and then they've all got to make their way up to the top. Well, they want to get closer up to the top to be with the leader uh, because then for them, you know, like it heals a lot of their wounds. You know, they feel like they're appreciated by somebody. A lot of them will try and work as hard as they can, you know, going to these like rallies and things like we saw in Ballarat uh, just to try and get closer to that leader uh, to fill, you know, the needs that they have. Is that what your 15-year-old self wanted? Um, to impress the leader? Would that have been a big motivation for you? Well, I was sort of like leading it myself. So, um, I mean, for me, it was uh, it was a bit around the other way. You know, like for me, it was I was kind of like the leader and I needed protection. So having that group gave me that protection. Mm. How long did it take you to walk away from that? 
uh, walk away, like uh, from the ideology and hatred and everything. Mm. Uh, it took years, um, but you know, I left pretty quickly. But then I realised that I had to go back and uh, you know get the other guys out of the group as well because you know I, I built this thing up that you know with this anti-Asian hate groups, I guess, and um, yeah, you know, me walking away was a bit irresponsible. You know, I had to go back and, and sort of pull it apart and and uh, help the guys that were involved to get out and live their lives in a more positive way. So, Matthew, Exit Australia is a very long-term project. I don't know whether you'd call it a project, but this is a long-term commitment to that. Yeah. I mean, I was talking with some uh, people today about that, you know, like they're asking, you know, like how long would you keep uh, a client, you know, like on the books, I guess. And I was saying, you know, like for me, I, I wouldn't take a client off, like depending obviously like on on the risk. Do you know what I mean? But if they're at that violent end, I wouldn't take them off the book for you know at least twenty years, and we've been going for eight years, so there's still plenty of time to keep going. Twenty years. So, given that level of commitment, that requires a fair amount of resourcing. What sort of resourcing do you have? No, uh, look, yeah, you know, the resources that we have is is actually very little. Um, you know, we're just lucky that we've worked with a lot of different communities. Um, you know, built the respect up with them that. Yeah, you know, they can help support us. Um, you know, finding people and stuff like that. But obviously, like when it comes to money, uh, it's you know it's pretty hard, especially like when we have clients that kind of they don't have anything. Um, you know, some of them don't even have a family. Um, you know, so they're attached themselves to this group as being their family. You know, we like we need to go out and get counselling for them, and, and we can't afford the counselling. Um, so it gets pretty tricky. You know, it's like how do we find a way to support these individuals, but you know, at the same time, don't have the funding to do it. Do you think the government's doing enough about radicalisation? I think the federal government is. I don't think state governments are doing enough. Um, you know, federal government, though, really only supports, like, other um, federal or state government bodies. There's not really any support that comes down to, like, the little people, um, like myself, the practitioners trying to work on it. Um, and state governments, you know, like, they were doing a lot like during the that period of the war on terrorism, but uh, it's really dropped off now. Um, I think there's a lot of work going on still. You know, there's a lot of support with the uh, Islamic community, uh, but you know, there's not really much at all for uh, people outside the Islamic community. Uh, really, like you know, for me, like I've been saying it for years. You know, like it should just be a, a broad system of support for the whole of Australia. Uh, not one, not one select group. You know. Will you keep doing this work, Matthew? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I committed myself to some individuals, so I have to keep going uh, until they're all clear. So, yeah. Well, Matthew, I really appreciate you talking to Australia Wide and being so frank. I think um, a lot of people would be quite shocked by some of what you said, but I think it's you know it's important to share the experience you're having so we can all understand it a bit better. Yeah, can I just uh, say something too? Uh, that um, you know, with the individuals that marched at Ballarat, you know, like um, I think that you know it's important to note that you know the fact that they're hiding their faces like shows how vulnerable they are. You know that they they can't be seen by the public um, because it'll actually show them who they are. You know, like not just outside but also on the inside, and issues that they're having with their lives. And I think that's something that you know needs to be noted that you know these individuals, even though they're out there trying to. Um, project that you know they're pushing fear and that they're strong men or they're actually like quite vulnerable people 
It's funny, though, some people would say that was cowardly. It is cowardly. It is, but that, that, that itself is a vulnerability too, yeah? Mm, it's, it's a completely different understanding of, of what you're visually seeing, the way you're, you know, the way you're looking at it. It's interesting. Yeah, I think I might be the only one. So I might be that guy that when everyone's running one way, I'm the running the other way. But um, seems to be working so far. So Good stuff. Well, Matthew Quinn, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. No worries, thank you. ABC Australia Wide. And finally here in Australia Wide, at this time of the year, there are graduation ceremonies happening all over the country as students finish another school year. Our reporter, Isabella Tolhurst, travelled to the remote community of Manangrida in the heart of Arnhem Land, where proud families celebrated their high school graduates with the ceremony combining the modern with the traditional. There may only be six students making up the graduating class of 2023, but in the isolated NT community of Manangrida, some 500 kilometres east of Darwin, graduating high school is an accomplishment worth celebrating. Graduate Eshua Bryan says it's a day he's been waiting for. I felt uh, excited. It was a long journey for me, like working hard and all that stuff and putting much pressure. In the sweltering tropical December heat, hundreds of people, most of the community, gathered on the basketball court at Manangrida College. Instead of caps and gowns, the graduates were painted with traditional ochre, each painting different according to the students' songlines. And as each of the students entered their graduation, each of the families performed a bungal, a ceremony of song and dance. Eshua's dad, Russell Bryan, says it's part of the passing on of knowledge to the next generation of leaders. The people here are sharing the knowledge in both ways. So revitalising our older culture and bring it back for our new generation to come. But it's not only the graduation ceremony in Manangrida that looked different. The education the students received has also been unique. Teacher Bettina Porkner has helped adjust the curriculum to accommodate the students' cultural responsibilities. Often there are a lot of cultural reasons why students can't attend school. You know, when they're off at ceremonies, that takes up a, a big part of their time. We're valuing what our students bring to school, not just what we're teaching them. So our students can receive credits for demonstrating cultural authority, responsibilities and leadership. Eshua is a Jungai in his community, which means he has to run ceremonies and teach younger kids. His teacher, Jacinta Graham, says they've had to be creative about making sure he continues his learning. We often have teachers going out to outstations to check in on kids and see where they're at with their learning. So there's a lot of logistical things that take place in terms of teaching. It's not simply just teaching in the classroom. We have to really think about how can we be clever as teachers to get that learning wherever it may be occurring on that day. Other students are taking part in VET courses, which have also been adapted, developing skills that are relevant in remote communities. Construction trainer Ben Richardson says it's gotten students more engaged with their learning. Part of the funeral process is building a shelter that goes over the body, and within that there's exactly the same steps involved as you would do in a house. So all the specifications for Western is still used but in binning way so it has to be a certain tree it has to be made by a certain person so a lot of that is brought back while schooling and the graduation ceremony may look different in manangrida the students share the same emotions as graduates all around the country excitement at finishing 13 years of schooling but also nerves and uncertainty about what the future may hold 
Many Australian students are now eagerly awaiting their ATAR results and applying for universities. But the teenagers in Manangrida have a different measure of success and different hopes for what their future may hold. Student Elvina Campion wants to follow in her uncle's footsteps, becoming a ranger. I was doing learning in country so that I can take over my uncle's ranger stuff for my mother country, like, you know, do stuff like learning in country and stuff with my uncle, like, back at my mother's country. Teacher Jacinta Graham says most of her students want to stay in community after graduating, becoming local leaders and carrying on the traditions and legacies of their families. They've had to learn the Western way of education at the same time trying to lead and execute their own ways of cultural learning. So I'm incredibly proud of these students. The next generation of Manangrida leaders doing things their own way. Isabella Tolhurst with that story from Manangrida and that is Australia-wide for this Thursday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. I'll speak to you again tomorrow. Cheerio. ABC Listen.